But in the spirit, boy, they wielded a scalpel. And it's not always easy to read it, but James 3.13, it's good for us once we do, and once we apply it, particularly James 3.13, we're going to read quickly the rest of this chapter, and then chapter 4, let's read James 3.13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking or selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom that you're walking in does not descend from above, but it's earthly, sensual, and even demonic, devilish. For where envy and selfish ambition, which is self-seeking, exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above, here's what it will look like when it comes from God, when it's God's wisdom, it's going to first be gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Chapter 4, verse 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? So remember what he told us about temptation. It comes from within. And so do wars and fightings. He says they come from within. It's a flesh problem. It's not the devil. Everybody say it's not the devil. We, we blame it on the devil. He gets a lot of credit for what he doesn't do. It's within them. Then look what he says about them. Verse 2, you lust and do not have. You murder and covet. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and you war. And he's talking to believers here, y'all. You fight and you war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Or you're the enemy of God when you're the friend of the world. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? God is jealous of you or jealous over you? But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Don't speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but you are a judge of the law. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Read the next six words with me, can you? Who are you to judge another? But we do it all the time. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we're going to go into such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what's going to happen tomorrow, what is your life? Here's what it is. It's a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. It's a morning fog. That come 9 or 10 o'clock, the sun burns it away. That's your life held up against eternity. 
Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. If he wills, we're going to live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Can everybody say amen? Bless your word tonight, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, perk up and listen. This is going to bless you tonight. And then grab your toes. This is, this is good stuff. You know, when you read the Bible, some of this stuff, we can, just, we can just read it and go home. It speaks for itself. And, and isn't it true that when you read it, especially out loud like that, in the midst of, of uh, brethren, doesn't it kind of stand out that the church just doesn't do a lot of these things? It just doesn't do a lot of these things. We're, uh, we're uh, long on talk, short on action. Now, verses 14 and 16, he talks about envy and selfish ambition. Envy and selfish ambition. In chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, envy and selfish ambition. Talked about it a little bit last week. Envy is when you, you look at something somebody else has and you hate them for it. Because you don't have it. You look at what somebody else has and you hate them for it because you don't have it. And you wonder why you don't have what they have. And you, so you envy. He says envy, or the Proverbs writer says, envy is like rottenness to the bones. Envy is just like rottenness to the bones. The Bible says, and I quoted this last week, that the reason they crucified Jesus was not because he was a blasphemer, not because he did anything wrong, but it says for envy they crucified him. Well, what did they envy? They envied that he had the crowds and they didn't. They envied that he had the charisma, and they didn't. They envied that he had the, the favor with God and with the people, and they didn't. And the envy became like rottenness in their bones. And folks, listen, if you don't get rid of envy, envy will get rid of you. If you find yourself looking at what other people have, and you are so focused on what they have, that you lose the ability to thank God for what you have, which is the key to contentment, then envy becomes like rottenness or cancer, something that eats up the marrow of your bones. It dries up your bones. So he says, he says where there is envy, and with that envy, selfish ambition, and, and the, the two go hand in hand because you see what they've got, you envy them for having it, you say, I'm going to get it. And so you become selfishly ambitious, filled with envy and selfish ambition, which is the witch's brew of our culture, our culture is envy and ambition driven. Have you ever noticed that? It's filled with envy and filled with selfish ambition or self-seeking. So he says, when you're driven by selfish ambition, thinking only of yourself, you're not moving in the will of God. You're just trying to get what somebody else has. It's, it's trying to keep up with the Joneses. He says, when that is there, here's what you're going to have. Confusion and every evil thing, every evil work. You're going to have confusion in that group, in that corporation, in that church, in that home. You're going to have confusion. One person thinking this, another person thinking that. No unity. Confusion. And there is not an evil scheme that will not be hatched in the presence of envy and selfish ambition. That's why it's got to go. And how do you get rid of envy and selfish ambition? The only thing you can do is bow to the will of God and you learn what he wants you to have, you will have. And, and you learn to say, Lord, what I don't have, I just trust you that I don't have it. So if so-and-so has it, well, that's what they have. I'm not going to worry about them. Don't you remember when, when Jesus 
spoke to Simon Peter and said, the day is going to come when they're going to turn you upside down. You're going to be taken where you don't want to go. And, and they're going to do to you what you don't want done to you. And he was predicting that Peter would be martyred. And there stood John. Don't you remember that when Jesus was done with that, Peter all bothered that Jesus hadn't spoken the same thing over John? I mean, this was not a great prediction. You're going to be martyred. They're going to, they're going to manhandle you someday and take you and do with you what you don't want done to you, Peter. And we know he was hung upside down on a cross. He looked at John and said, what about this man? But what about this man? And Jesus said these words, what is that to you? You follow me. In other words, Simon Peter, listen to me, Simon Peter. What I have for you isn't what I have for him, and what I have for him isn't what I have for you. Little did any of them know that of the 12 disciples, John, who was standing there, would live to, a, to be a ripe old age, probably well into his 80s, and would be John the Revelator, who would be exiled to Patmos and give us the book of Revelation. And Jesus just had a different will for him. And Jesus said, listen, if you get your eyes all on him and what's happening with him and what I'm doing with him, you will not be able to fulfill my will for you. So you focus on me, Peter. What is it to you what I do with him? If I want to make that person rich, I'll make him rich. What is that to you? If I want to give that person a certain blessing, what is that to you? Because when it's all leveled out and put in the scales, God is just as good to every person, but the way his will manifests is different in every life. So you've got to learn to say, when you're envying somebody, wait a minute, wait a minute, talk to yourself. What is it to you? Get your eyes off that person. Because you're going to let what God's doing with that person torment you where you can't do my will for you. What is it to you what I do with them? What do you care what I do with them? That's none of your business. He's mine and you're mine. And once you can let that go and just say, you know what, thy will be done in my life, then lordship has a way of just chasing envy right out the back door. Because you can't walk in envy if you're yielded to the lordship of Jesus. You can't walk in envy because you're trusting whatever he wants me to have, I'm going to have it. What I don't have, bless God, I don't have it. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. What is that to me? Amen? So he says, don't walk in confusion, hatching every evil thing so you can keep up with the Joneses. Don't be tormented with that, but yield to me. If you're walking in my wisdom, here's the way it's going to manifest. It's going to be pure. It's going to be peaceable. It's going to be gentle. It's, going to be, it's not going to have any partiality. You're not going to be judging people based on the color of their skin or their financial status in the society. It doesn't matter. You're not going to show partiality and you're not going to walk in hypocrisy and you're going to sow it in peace. God's wisdom brings peace, not the torment of envy. I don't think there's anything more tormenting than envy and jealousy. I don't think anything can run a number on you like envy and jealousy. God wants you free from it. So we just say, can we just do it right now? Lord, I just give my life to you. I'm not going to look at what anybody else has. I'm not going to compare myself to another human being. What is that to me? What is that to me? Thank you for what you're doing with me. In Jesus' name, amen.
Well, praise God. I could go home after that. That's good. Now, apparently, James, remember, he was talking to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. These were Jewish Christians who had been persecuted in Jerusalem. And the, the Jerusalem persecution was so intense, they scattered everywhere. And he's writing now this message to Jewish Christians. Paul was called to focus on Gentile Christians. James, the half-brother of Jesus, was called to minister to Jewish Christians, at least right here. And apparently James was addressing issues he'd either seen himself or had been told about that was happening in the church. This is the church. The Jerusalem church, everybody. I absolutely overtook Jerusalem. <clears throat> it's been estimated that it was at least 100,000 strong in Jerusalem of the first century. So here they get scattered abroad. They get scattered to the four winds because of persecution. And James swoops in, focusing by the Spirit of God on the problems that they were experiencing. And by the Holy Ghost, he starts reading their mail. Look at what he says. He says, there's fightings among you. There's wars among you. Wars. People are out for themselves. There's unrest. There's arguing. There is the equivalent of murder. You're killing each other. So he's really expanding on James 3.16 that we read. If you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, there's going, to be, there's going to be every evil work. Now he's listing the evil works that were manifesting because they had envy of one another and selfish ambition because of that envy. He says, what is causing the quarrels and the fights among you? Isn't it because there's a whole army of evil desires within you? Now didn't James tell us earlier, way back in chapter 1, that temptation that was bad for you he didn't blame the devil for it. He said, temptation that is bad for you comes from within. From the lusts in your members. He, he nailed it. Now the devil capitalizes on that, but it doesn't come from him. It sources itself within us. And he's carrying the same theme now from temptation sourcing itself or rooting itself within you to fighting and quarrels. He says it's a whole army of evil desires that are within you. Now, does that mean that they were lost? No, no, no. What they were doing, y'all, is learning. They were learning and needed to learn to crucify the flesh. Now, when you get saved, you're saved. I got an email this week. Somebody asked me if they'd lost their salvation. And I said, no. I, if, you, if you were born again, you haven't lost your salvation. You may have gone off into sin, you may have made some real mistake, but you, or really sinned, but you haven't lost your salvation. Because you see, when believers get saved, when somebody gets saved and becomes a believer, and they begin to walk by faith uh, in Christ, and the Spirit of God comes and lives in their heart, it doesn't mean that they're delivered from the flesh. See, we've got to learn to crucify the flesh. Because it's from that flesh that comes evil desires, a whole army of evil desires operating in you. Where does envy come from? The flesh. Selfish ambition. The flesh. Hate. The flesh. That's a work of the flesh. 
Gossip, that's a work of the flesh. Slander, that's a work of the flesh. Everything that he names here is a work of the flesh. Where do wars and fightings come from? You fight and you war, yet you don't have because you don't ask. He says, what about these desires? You're, You're filled with all these evil desires. That's the flesh that was operating in them. He says, you want what you don't have and you kill to get it. That's envy. You want what you don't have and you kill to get it. He says, in another place, my brethren, these things ought not so to be. It's not a matter of getting saved again. It's a matter of learning how to crucify your flesh. First of all, folks, you can't crucify it until you recognize it. You've got to see what it is. You've got to see what it is that's operating against you. And what we do, especially in the charismatic world, we, we blame all these things on the devil. That's the devil. I've been in places where there was demons of tobacco, demons of alcohol, demons of drugs, demons of this and that and the other. And then I've seen people get them cast out, go through all kinds of contortions and fits and drooling and thrown up into little sacks. I've been in churches where they had vomit sacks in little places behind the pews. And when demons came out, you just grabbed the sack and threw up. And let me tell you something. I've seen people get demons of tobacco cast out. And then see him the next street, day walking down the street smoking a cigarette. I think, well, that devil got back in there quick. But no, it wasn't a devil. It was not a devil. The devil uses uncrucified flesh. The problem is not the devil. 99% of our problems come from uncrucified flesh. And see, we don't like that because that puts the, the responsibility on us and we've got to take it off the devil. We bind the devil. We're gossiping. Bind the devil. Slander. Bind the devil. Now, the devil does take advantage when we let the flesh get out of hand. But I'm going to tell you something. It, the, the problem is almost always the flesh. Read where Paul talks about in Galatians about the works of the flesh. And he names them. Everything he names, we in our day would call a devil. But he calls them works of the flesh. Even witchcraft, it's a work of the flesh. So James it moves in and he starts meddling. He says, he says, you long for what others have and can't afford it, so you start a fight and to take it away from them. You see somebody in a position of power. You envy them. You wish you had it. So you, he, what James is saying is you're sowing discord to stir up trouble so that you can make a power play and seize power because you envy the ones who have it. This happens all the time in churches. Let me tell you something, folks. This stuff happens all the time in churches. Power plays, envy, jealousy. And we we see things. We, We want things. We want positions of power. We want positions of authority. We want to be recognized. We want to be in the limelight. You'll have somebody who wants to teach, somebody who wants to preach, somebody who wants to be up in front of the people. And yet, they, they can't get there unless they do it by the works of the flesh, which is to stir up trouble, stir up turmoil, sow discord, and then seize the power. Only problem is, if you cause trouble and manipulate your way into power, 
then you have the responsibility of keeping it with your own power. But if God puts you in the place or the position of power, it's his responsibility to keep you there. David understood that and trusted God every step of the way before he was king and after he was king. Saul doubted God's anointing and ability to keep him in power, so he manipulated and tried to murder David, moved in the flesh, lost his mind, ended up consulting a witch for a word from God, and died by his own hand because by the flesh he tried to keep the power only God could give. James says, the reason you don't have what you want is you're not asking God for it. Envy and jealousy mixed with worldly affection stir up all kinds of trouble. All kinds of trouble. So he says, your prayers aren't being answered because you're asking for the wrong thing. Now let's look at that just for a minute. He says, first of all, you don't have what you want because you're not asking God for it. But then you go to God and you say, okay, here's what I want. And he doesn't give it to you because you're not asking according to his will. You're asking God, you're coming to God with your fleshly desires, and you're wanting him to side with you and give you what your flesh wants. And you know what? God just won't do it. You know, he always answers prayer. He'll either say yes, or he'll say no, or he'll say wait. I like yes. I am okay with wait. I don't like no. I think sometimes the reason we resort to fleshly tactics to get something we want instead of going to him is because we know what he's going to say if we go to him. And we don't want to hear it. That's why some people won't come to a church that, that teaches the Bible. They just don't want to hear it. There's lots of churches you can go to and sit there for a year and never come under conviction because they never quote the word. Let me tell you something, folks. God will say no. James is telling us the reason you don't have what you're asking for is because you're asking amiss, that you may spend what you're asking for on your lust. He said, God's not going to do that. God's not going to do that. He would, you would not give to your child if your child came to you and said, you know, dad or mom, uh, I want this or that. And you know good and well that if they got this or that, whatever it is, it would scar their face. You wouldn't let them within five square miles of it. But they said, I'm convinced this is what I want. But you know, if you get it, it's going to scar your life. And so there's no way that I'm going to give it to you. Very well, then I'll go get it myself. And we move into selfish ambition, which is a train wreck waiting to happen. When you say, God won't give it to me, so I'm going to get it myself. And you move out from under the will of God, and you go to get it yourself, because he's already said no. This happens all the time in the church, all the time. And you move to get it yourself. You manipulate. You connive. You, you twist. You, you do everything you can. And then you might just get it. God might say, go ahead. When God says, go ahead, and you're going after something that he's already told you no, and he says to you, go ahead, you need to hit your face and say, God, stop me now. Because when he gives you what you've been wanting, and he's already told you no, I can hear the train wreck before I ever see it. Because you know what it's going to do? It's going to scar you. It's going to scar you. 
as you walk with God for years and years and years, you have some battle scars, you have some battle wounds. But here's what you learn. When he says no, even though you can't see why in the world he would say no, you just say, you demand. Because I've learned, I've got a scar here, I've got a scar here, I've got a scar. When you said no and I went ahead, and you said, go ahead, and I went ahead and got it, and I train wrecked, and you might still be living with it today. You learn, when he says no, you real quick say, yes, sir, yes, sir. Jesus said, don't make a bunch of vows and vow this and vow that. He said, just let your yes be yes or your no, no. You learn as you go on in God, when he says no, yes to your no. Yes, sir. You demand. You demand. You demand. You see what I don't see? You know what I don't know? I trust that little nudge on the inside when you say no. You say no for a reason. I can't see it. But I trust you. Yes, sir. Don't want another bruise. Don't want another cut. Don't want another scar. Don't want to bleed more. Yes, sir. Settles it. And oh, a while down the road, you see why he said no. Oh, thank God, thank God, thank God, thank God. Thank God I obeyed. Now, you know, God says in verse 4, he calls them adulterers and adulteresses. Don't you know that being the friend of the world is enmity with God? And he's just saying, if you walk in envy and selfish ambition, you're a friend of the world. And he says, that means you've left your vows, the vows that you've made to me, you've left them. That makes you an adulterer or an adulteress. You've a spiritual adulterer. You've left your vows to me and you've become a friend with the world. What would this do with the church of today? The Laodicean church that we live in. We live in the Laodicean church. White is black, black is white. Uh, wrong is right, right is wrong. You can dabble with the world, you can, you can, you can flirt with the world, you can this and that, and, and it doesn't really matter to God. No, no, no. Listen, what does it mean to be a friend with the world? It means you're on good terms with the world. How can you be a friend? If you're a friend with something, you're on good terms with it. You understand one another. You're relating. You're communicating. There's a give and there's a take. He said, if you're on those terms with this world that is fashioned after the God and by the God of this world, who is the devil, his ways are selfish ambition, his ways are envy, his ways are jealousy, his ways are to seek for yourself. Paul said, all seek their own, not the things that are Jesus Christ. That's the world's way. Me, myself, and I, that's this world's Godhead. Me, myself, and I, that's this world's Godhead. And if, if, if that's the philosophy you're living under and by, you're a friend of the world. And if you're a friend of the world, God is standing there going, you are my enemy. If you, if you can sit there and, 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 and just have no problem with the things that are in this world, and even be a part of it and live like it, Think like it, talk like it, walk like it. Shake hands with it. Hey, 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 you and me, we're in agreement. We're friends. And God said, I'm over here and, and, and I'm not just not with you, 
I'm your enemy. Now, here's an enemy you don't want. Give me a million demons against me, but God with me, and I will prevail. But give me one devil giving me a problem, but God's against me? If God's against me, the whole world can be for me, and I'm dead in the water. Because you, listen, the old song, I fought the law and the law won. Let me tell you something. You can fight the law sometimes and sometimes win. Every once in a while, every once in a while, it's Russian roulette, worse than that, because probably you're not going to win. But some people break the law and are never caught. But watch this. You're always caught by God. He'll find you out. He will catch you. He knows where you're going before you even go. And he's, so, he, you know, if he's my enemy, then I've got to figure out how to get things right where he's with me. If God be for us, who can be against us? But if he's against us, who can be for us? He will always win. Can you say it with me? He will always win. <clears throat> Best thing you can do, I was reading the book Joyce Meyer wrote recently, and, and she said in there, she said, when God, she said, um, when God tells you to give something up, best thing you can do is just give it up. He knows his business. <laughs> that's what, the way she put it. He knows his business. I remember thinking, that's, that's vintage Joyce. He knows his business. All right. If God tells you to give something up, give it up. Just don't even, don't even think about struggling. Because if you run down the road, he's going to find you. If you hang on to it and let everything else go, he's going to find that one thing. And so go ahead and just give it up and, and don't put up a fight and make your life longer. Is it always easy? No, sometimes you'll have a titanic struggle giving something up. But boy, if he taps you on the shoulder and says, let it go. And Joyce in this book was talking about smoking. I can't picture Joyce, but she said... She says she used to literally teach Bible studies in her living room. She said, in the shortest of shorts, smoking a cigarette, can you picture this? I can't. She says, smoking a cigarette, teaching, with, she says, cigarette in one hand and Bible in the other. In short shorts, teaching a little group of people in my living room. And she said, when God came and tapped me on the shoulder to give up cigarettes, she said it took me, she told the time, I think, over a year to do it, a real struggle. But she said, but I learned. If he says give something up, give it up. He knows his business. But picturing Joyce that way, I thought, oh, what God can do. That ought to encourage everybody. Joyce on the living room floor, smoking a cigarette, Bible on the other hand. Makes me feel better. How about you? And I think Joyce is a great teacher. I love Joyce. <clears throat> um, James goes on, the Spirit of God within us is jealous over us. And that's why he wants us to be completely yielded to him. He's jealous over us. So he says, don't be a friend of the world. If you're a friend of the world, I'm jealous. It's just like you went and found another lover. I'm jealous. I'm going to be jealous over you. My spirit's going to be jealous over you. Well, what does a jealous God do? When he's got a reason to be jealous and you have pledged your allegiance or begun to be friends with something he doesn't want you to be friends with, I'm going to tell you what he'll do. He's going to find you and he's going to whoop you. Read Hebrews 12 about the chastening of the Lord. And he will get your attention. Well, Pastor Jeff, I came tonight for some cookies and coffee. I didn't come to be completely and totally and thoroughly convicted. 
<clears throat> I can hear you thinking. But I had to study it before you had to hear it. I mean, that's a fact. Now, what do you do when you wake up and you realize, you know what, I really have strayed from God? Didn't know that I was, but I did. What do you do if I become a friend of the world and an enemy of God? I didn't know he was my enemy. What do I do? He says, here's what you do. Verses 6 to 10 tell us. First, you've got to repent. Folks, let me tell you something. There is no other way back. There isn't one. You can make 300 New Year's resolutions. It won't get you back. You can make all kinds of promises that you're going to turn your life around. It will not get you back. Story is told of the preacher. This is a true story. A preacher and his wife were driving down an old country road. They were driving along. They were, they'd gotten on in years. They were in their 70s, 80s, and they didn't see the driver. The man didn't see so good. He's driving down this old country road, and all of a sudden in front of him was this lone cow standing in the middle of the road. And he thought, oh no, he's completely escaped from this pasture that was to their right. And so he turned and tried to swerve from the cow, but it was this little, little narrow, dirt country road. So the cow just began to run in front of him. And the cow was desperately looking for a way back into that pasture and couldn't find it. So finally this pastor, this preacher, stopped the car, drove back, and looked where they had found the cow, and right where they had found the cow on the road there was a hole in that fence. So he said these words, the only way that cow is ever getting back into that pasture is to go back through the hole he came out of. Now listen to me. If you become a friend of the world, you, don't, you didn't mean to, you didn't wake up one day and say, I believe today I'm going to become a friend of the world. I'm going to get away from God. You can do it in a million ways. It just means putting something above him. Something or someone. And he's no longer Lord. Alright? But you wake up one day, there's no more peace. There's no more joy. There's no more enjoyment of the things of God. The word, prayer, going to church, fellowshipping with Christians. Because, listen, when you get away from God, there is a conviction that sets into you on the inside that gnaws away at your conscience like termites inside wood and it will not leave you alone. And it gets worse, and it gets worse, and worse, until you say with the children of Israel, when I wake up in the morning, I w wish to God it was night, and at night I wish to God it was morning. Why? Because there is no time in 24 hours when I have peace. Because he's after me. You become the friend of the world. The only way back is to go where you first got out. What was it? A person? A thing? A habit? Selfish ambition? Envy? A lust? What? Doesn't matter. Go back. And right there, say, God, at that time in my life, I shook hands with a wrong decision. And that's where I got out of the green pastures and the still waters. And I got on this filthy dirt road that led nowhere. And if you'll go back 
and go right back in where you got out by repentance. Peace will return to you. At that hour, at that moment, peace will return to you. He says you got to repent. Cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, double-minded. Step two, humility. You start walk in humility. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When you repent, you say, Lord, I cannot make it without you. So much for my selfish ambition. Look what I got me. So much for going my own way. Look what I got me. So, Lord, here and now, not only do I repent, but I bow in humility before you. You honestly say, I messed my life up by these decisions. That's humility. He says, he'll pour grace out on the humble. If you remain proud, you're just going to fall again. It won't be two days before you fall again. If you humble yourself, grace is poured out on you. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The last thing you do is you resist the devil. Because he's going to come and try to lure you out of that hole again. Lure you through that broken place in the fence again. And that's where you just got to say, I resist you. I resist you in the name of Jesus. I'm humbled before God. I've repented. I'm cleansed. I resist you. He said, if you'll do those three things, you'll be restored. You'll be restored. And you'll be able to wake up one day and say, I am no longer the friend of the world, but I'm the friend of God. And then he cl closes with this. Anybody being blessed tonight? All right, this is real stuff now. Real. How many of you have realized, honestly, without him, you're dead in the water? You're, you're going to mess up so bad without him? You're just dead in the water. You've got to have him. Now, he closes with this. Don't condemningly judge somebody else. You know why I think he said that? It's in verse 12. He says, he says, who are you? Verse 11, too. Don't speak evil of one another. Who are you to speak evil of your brother? In light of the fact that you so easily stray and you so easily become a friend of the world, and if you don't repent and humble yourself and resist the devil, you can be right where they are. And we've got to remember Galatians 6, 1 at this point. says, if anybody be overtaken in a fault, literally trapped in a stumbling, you who are spiritual, restore such a one, first considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Because all of us, can in a day, in a week, in a month, stray and become the friend of the world. Isn't that Demas over there? Isn't that Demas over there? Demas, didn't you used to walk with Paul, help him in his missionary journeys? Weren't you right there with him, speaking in tongues, laying hands on the sick, winning the lost? Demas, what are you doing? What'd you say, Paul? He what? He's forsaken you? Why? Because he became a friend of the world? What happened to you, Demas? 
You know, I really can't tell you. One little decision led to another, to another, to another. And I know what Paul says about me. He says, I love this present world. I'm a friend of this present world. I think by the end of his life, he would have said, oh, I missed the anointing that was there when I walked with Paul. But the world got me. If it could happen to Demas, where are we? So he says, don't go judging people, fool. Take care of the beam in your own eye. Forget about them. If you're going to do anything with them, be sure there's no beam in your eye so that you have the ability to see and restore them. But don't judge them. If you judge them, you're judging the law. And you're going to be nailed. You yourself will fall. Because you're judging them with harsh, ungodly judgment. Verse 3 to 16 or 13 to 16 are simple. He says, don't go into a city and say you're going to buy and sell and get gain. You don't know what it's going to bring. A clear signal that you're having an affair with the world is when you make plans without seeking God. Now see, all of this runs in a, in a continuum. You see this in this chapter? There is one continual thought. You know, hey, you know what? If you become a friend of the world, here's what you're going to do. You're going to make plans and go places and say, I'm going to go do this and that and the other. And what you've done is you're no longer even asking God. You're just going and doing it. That's one of the clear signals. Did you know that? That you're not with him the way you ought to be? If you're making decisions without the, the, the advice and the counsel of God. He said, now if you know you ought to do this and you don't do it, it's sin. Sin is not just doing what you know is wrong, but it's not doing what you know is right. So he says, if you know about being a friend of the world, if you know about seeking God, if you know about not speaking against your brother, and you know what is right, and you don't do it, it's sin. So, what do we get from this chapter? We get a lot from this chapter, don't we? Isn't this a good chapter? We learn, I can become a friend of the world if I'm not careful. Two, when I do, I repent. I humble myself. Amen? Repent and humble myself and resist the devil. And in the meantime, when I realize the frailty of me, I do not look at others and just judge the fire out of them. I resist that impulse. And if I have any desire towards them at all, it is to restore them. Because that was Jesus Christ. That was Jesus. He didn't do what church folk do. Because if you judge somebody harshly, your fall is only a matter of time. <sighs> Amen? All right, let's stand up together tonight, can we? I know we got cookies and coffee back there, and I'm having a coffee temptation, and coffee is not in the Word of God, and so I'm free to be an addict to coffee.